know what time it is. It's time for Ask a Spaceman. I'm your host, Paul Sutter. You've got questions and I've got answers. You know how this show works, but let's discover it one more time. Go online, Twitter, Facebook, hashtag Ask a Spaceman. Do your thing. Send me questions and I will pick ones out to answer on this show. You can also email me directly, askaspaceman at gmail.com. Also, you can visit askaspaceman.com. There's my website, has all the show notes. You can comment on the shows. You can also have uh, discussions there if you feel like it. Maybe I'll respond. Maybe I won't. Depends on my mood on that day. We have one simple goal with this show, complete knowledge of time and space. And don't forget, this show is brought to you by you. This is your show, your questions. You're also helping to support it. Patreon.com slash PM Sutter. Kick in a couple bucks a month. That's all it takes to keep this show going. Now, on the road. I don't want to waste any time because this is such an exciting topic. It's a topic that I personally geek out about a lot. uh, And I try to contain my enthusiasm. So I'll try not to shout. Maybe I need to turn down the microphone level for this episode because I might just get all shouty and excited. It's about life. It's about life not on earth. One of the most profound fundamental questions of our entire human existence, are we alone? I have no idea. (laughs) We're not going to answer that question on this show, but we're going to talk about some related questions. Specifically, Robert M. on Facebook asks about Europa, and he asks about the pressure of water in these supposed oceans of Europa and Enceladus. Kieran P. on Facebook asked, uh, what could we discover on Europa and or Enceladus if we were to actually go there? What would we find? And on Twitter, at Abguntha asked me to compare Europa's atmosphere to Mars and the challenges of putting a lander there. So I took these questions kind of, uh, and I kind of asked my own question, a more fundamental question, just is there life or is is there the possibility of life on Europa, on Enceladus, on one of these other moons? Now, if you were to go back 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago, whatever, and asked an astronomer, where would you find a life in a solar system? Pick any star out there, look at it, where would you find life? And the answer they would give you would be the habitable zone. The habitable zone. In, in, in fact, if you were to ask astronomers or astrophysicists or whoever today, like right now, go into your uni- nearest university, knock on their door, say, hey, buddy, where do you think life would exist around a star? And they would say, blah, 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 uh, get out of my office. But then they might say habitable zone. This is the Goldilocks zone around any star. Any star, uh, if you get too close to a star, then water just evaporates. It boils away. All right, so we look at planets in the inner parts of the solar system and their infernal hellscapes. All right, they're just like cooked to cinders, hundreds, thousands of degrees, whatever. Just rocks, hot, no chance of life. Okay, but if you go too far away from a star, space is super cold, 
And instead of boiling water, you're just going to freeze all the water. So you have like icy hellscapes in the distant solar system. You Or you have gas giants. No one's living in a gas giant. When you look at the moons, well, they're all frozen. You see lots of water, but it's all locked up in ice. So no chance for life in ice. You need liquid water. That is the one number one requirement for life as we know it with that major caveat, but life as we know it requires liquid water. And for the longest time, the only place we knew of that had liquid water today was Earth and still is Earth. We know that Mars had liquid water in the past. Three billion years ago, it had blue oceans, atmosphere, the whole deal possible for life. But now, not so much. Uh, there has been some recent evidence. Uh, we've looked at these uh, crater slopes on Mars, and we've seen that there's some liquid water. I wouldn't... It's technically liquid water in these crater on Mars. Uh, that's pretty much a whole other episode, uh, water on Mars. Go ahead and ask that. That's more like... <laughs> It's wet like a sponge has liquid water in it. It's not really what you think of as like flowing rivers and lakes in oceans. So it kind of technically counts, but for our purposes, it doesn't count. Earth has liquid water on its surface. Earth is in the habitable zone. It's in this Goldilocks, just the right place where it's not too hot where all the water boils off and not too cold that all all the water freezes. It's liquid water. So if you're going to look for life, Look in this very narrow band around every star where liquid water can exist uh, on a planet. Okay, but what we're going to talk about is liquid water in a place where nobody would have predicted it. Liquid water in a place in the solar system that would be the last place you would look for liquid water okay maybe not the last but like second to last i wouldn't look for liquid water on the surface of the sun and i wouldn't look for water in the kuiper belt and i certainly wouldn't look for liquid water in the moons of the giant planets but what we're about to talk about is exactly that so our whole notion of Life has to appear in the habitable zone because it's the only place where liquid water can exist in the solar system. Already, that's right out. So if you want to catalog the list of places where life could appear based on the necessity of liquid water, you have a much bigger catalog than you did before. So let's talk about let's talk about Europa. Europa is a moon of Jupiter. It's kind of big as moons go. It's about the size of our own moon, uh, plus or minus a little bit. But it couldn't be any more different than our own moon. You look at our moon, uh, what do you see? You see a bunch of craters. You see a bunch of dried up lava flows. Looks like interesting things happened to the moon billions of years ago. And since then, it's just kind of been hanging out, minding its own business, super quiet. Europa is remarkably smooth. 
I think it's the smoothest object uh, or the smoothest like rocky planet or moon in the solar system. I'm not 100% sure on that, but it's super smooth, smoother than the earth. That's for sure. And it's incredibly reflective and it's smooth and reflective because there is ice along its entire surface. So this entire moon is encased in a thick layer of water ice. And that surface, here's where Europa starts to get interesting. That surface is young. That surface has relatively few craters on it. We know that when our solar system was young, there were cratering events all over the place. There were just rocks flying, planets smashing into each other. It was a crazy, messy time. And that's where a lot of the cratered surfaces in our solar system got all their craters, was during this, what we call the late heavy bombardment. And if you don't have craters on your surface today, or if you don't have a lot of craters on your surface today, that means something is happening to your surface to erase those craters. This happens on the earth. The earth has relatively few craters. In fact, when we do find craters, they're super exciting and unique because they're special. Because of erosion, because of plate tectonics, the earth gets rid of its craters. It has a relatively young surface. Mars, lots of craters, not so young. Mercury, tons of craters. Old is the solar system, old as heck. The moon, tons of craters, old. Europa, perfectly smooth, polished, clean. There's a couple craters, but you know, you expect a couple, but it's new. It's a young surface. Something is happening to that ice to make it erase its craters, to renew the ice as time goes on. There's even evidence for plate tectonics itself, but plates not plates made of rock like they are on the earth, but plates made of ice, like giant icebergs. Each iceberg, like a quarter of the size of the planet, covering a huge amount of surface. These, these icebergs rubbing and grinding against each other, sometimes shoving up against each other or one slipping down underneath the other. Just plate tectonics like we have on the earth, but made of ice. And along these ice, there's cracks, deep fissures in cracks. And perhaps the most intriguing aspect is this reddish-orange splotchiness that we see on the surface. It's not pure white or clear blue ice. There's red splotches here and there. There's darker patches and lighter patches. And along these fissures, along these cracks that stretch from one end of the moon to the other, uh, we see these dark red bands. And then it gets even more interesting. Most recently, the Hubble telescope has spotted plumes or geysers of water coming out of the surface. And what these are, we, we see this in other places in the solar system, but it was only recently that we spotted this on Europa. These are cryovolcanoes. And that is perhaps my favorite word. I mean, there are a lot of contenders for favorite word. I don't know. Maybe this isn't number one. It's definitely top five favorite words. Say it with me. 
I don't care if you're in a bus or something, cryo volcano, cryo as in cold and volcano as in volcano, cryo volcano. We have volcanoes on earth. What are volcanoes made of? Volcanoes are made of rock. What do volcanoes spit out? Volcanoes spit out liquid rock. It, they're really hot in the middle and hot enough to melt the rock. And every once in a while, that liquid rock spews out the top and then cools off and becomes normal everyday rock. Mountains made of rock that spew out liquid rock. That's a volcano. Cryovolcano, exact same thing. Imagine in your head a volcano, except make it cold and make it ice. Instead of being made of rock, it's made of ice. Instead of spewing out liquid rock, it's spewing out liquid ice, a.k.a. water. So they're just like frozen volcanoes, which is pretty awesome. So there's something funny happening with Europa. Just look at the data. Just look at this list of observations, these kind of facts I've laid out for you for Europa. It has a smooth ice-covered surface. It has deep fissures, cracks in these ice. There's a bunch of red junk, and there's geysers. There's cryovolcanoes. What the heck is going on with Europa? I mean, if you think outer solar system, you think... The gas giants, the ice giants, Neptune, Saturn, Jupiter, whatever, are the interesting ones because they're big planets. They've got complex atmospheres. They have magnetic fields. They have rings. You would think the moons of these planets would be like our moon or Mars's moons, just rocks, just hunks of rocks left over. Sorry, you didn't get to be a part of the planet. You just get to sit there and be boring. But Europa is doing very interesting things. Europa is being warmed, but it's too far from the sun to be warmed by sunlight. Out there at the Jupiter system, it's like twilight all the time. There just isn't a lot of solar energy. So what is making Europa warm enough that it can have geysers, that it can have flows of ice, shifting ice sheets, what is going on? And the answer is tidal flexing. I've talked about tidal bulges before, especially with our moon and the tides on Earth. All right. Uh, if you have a chunk of matter orbiting another chunk of matter, uh, the stuff that's uh, closer to the thing you're orbiting gets pulled out a little because gravity is a little bit stronger because you're just a little bit closer. And then on the far side, it actually drifts away. So it's, you actually take a planet, you can stretch it a little. And we're used to thinking of tides as happening with like water, right? Because water is e really easy to pull and stretch with gravity. It can also happen to rock. Gravity's gravity. It'll do its thing. It won't be as much. It won't be as a big effect as if you were doing it to the oceans, but, you know, the continents on Earth experience a little tidal force. The entire Earth itself deforms and stretches a little. The moon itself has some pretty decent tidal bulges. Uh, the moon is actually kind of lemon-shaped uh, when you look at it because of these tidal bulges, because of these things, just normal gravity doing its thing, taking a planet and just squeezing it just a little, just stretching it out a little, making it not quite so round. Typical tidal bulge. When a moon 
develops tidal bulges. This usually leads to what we call tidal locking, where one face of the moon will always be pointed to the planet. So that's why we only see one side of the moon. There's a light side and a dark side. And that happened to Europa. So only one side of Europa faces Jupiter during its orbit. This, when these tidal bulges develop, which don't take long, like a few million years, when these tidal bulges develop, they also tend to kind of uh, circularize your orbit. So let's just say you started out four and a half billion years ago in the solar system and you're a moon around Jupiter and you had this really eccentric orbit. So you'd come really, really close to Jupiter and then you go really far and then close and far, really long ellipse. Well, very quickly you develop a tidal bulge and then the interaction of that tidal bulge with Jupiter, you work out the math slowly over time that ellipse goes away and you end up being in a nice, perfect circle. So the moon has a very nice circular orbit around the Earth. Even if it started with a very elliptical orbit over millions and billions of years, these tidal interactions, these, these tugs of gravity, circularize it. Europa is not in a circular orbit around Jupiter. It ought to be. It ought to be in a circular orbit around Jupiter because of these tidal effects, but it's not. It's in a very elliptical orbit. And the reason for that is a resonance, a resonance to the rescue. Uh, imagine you're watching a race, like you're watching the Olympics or something, and there's some folks on the inner track and some folks on the outer track. And they start running. And let's say the folks on the inner track are like really, really fast. Like so fast that you're out of breath just watching them. And they end up lapping their competitors. So they like zip around the track. Zip, 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 zip. And then the people on the outside of the track, you know, they're, they're not slow. But they're definitely slower than the person on the inside of the track. And so they get lapped, 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 lapped. A resonance happens in orbits when the inner moons lap the outer moons on a regular basis. In the case of Jupiter, if we look at three of its moons, Io, Europa, and Ganymede, every time Europa does one orbit, Io, which is, is one moon in, does two. So it's a perfect, uh, it's a perfect ratio. Every time Europa does one lap around Jupiter, Io on the inside track coming around the track does whoop, whoop, does two. And then outside of Europa, the next one out is Ganymede. Uh, for every one that Ganymede does, Europa does two and Io does four. So you're almost like you're doubling it. Uh, for, as you go out, Io to Europa to Ganymede, Io will do four rotations, Europa will do two, and then Ganymede will do one. So Io's constantly lapping Europa and Ganymede, but it's doing it in the same place every time. It's this perfect integer. And because of that, what happens in these resonances, usually they're unstable. So usually this this kind of interaction, this kind of extra gravitational tug 
will actually tend to pull things out of orbit. So you can imagine, uh, and these runners on the track, let's see if I can make this analogy work. I'm kind of making it up on the fly as usual. These runners on the track, uh, let's say they had like little ropes attached to each other. And so every time they got close, so every time uh, that runner on the inside track got close to one of the runners on the outside track, they got to give them a little, a little tug, a little gravitational tug. And so not, not only do these moons orbit the planet, but they get some bonus interactions. They get bonus gravity in their orbits. Usually this is destabilizing. Usually this will pull a runner out of the track. Usually this will kick a moon out of the system. But when you have this special setup with three moons and they follow this resonance pattern in these, by the way, these resonance patterns aren't just like a coincidence. It's not just random. They develop over time. Uh, you can actually uh, figure this out. If you just start with some moons and a big planet, eventually the resonance will develop naturally. Uh, and this particular resonance is stable. It actually keeps these planets, or sorry, it keeps these moons in their orbit around Jupiter. And that prevents, because of these extra gravitational tugs from Io and Ganymede, Europa never gets the chance to circularize its orbit. It tries to. Because of these tidal interactions, it wants to. It's like so sick of this ellipse. It just wants to be a circle. Every time it tries, then Ganymede comes along and says, nope, and gives it a little tug. Or Io gives it a little push. Just enough, Europa maintains an ellipse. But it still has these tidal bulges. So what's happening is this bulgy planet that's not perfectly round is bulged out on the sides gets close to jupiter gets far away from jupiter gets close to jupiter gets far away from jupiter when it's closer to jupiter the gravity from jupiter is stronger the tidal bulges are bigger because uh closer things have stronger gravity that's how gravity works when it's further away from jupiter the tidal bulges are smaller so Jupiter is almost is is reaching out with its gravitational hands and stretching and squeezing Europa as it goes about its orbit. It's flexing it like a little piece of silly putty. And that stretching and squeezing of the stuff Europa is made of generates friction which generates heat. So Europa is heated not by sunlight, not by radioactive decay, that's what keeps the earth warm, but by this flexing in its orbit around Jupiter because it's in this lucky place. So the same thing happens to Io. Io is like Io, not Iowa. Io is a like volcano planet. I mean, pure stereotypical volcano planet. It looks horrible. Uh, no place on, uh, no place friendly for life on Io uh, because it's getting like super extreme uh, stretching and deforming because it's the nearest one out. Uh, Ganymede, nothing really special happening on Ganymede. Maybe we'll get to that later because it's pretty far out. Europa is in this lucky orbit. 
where it gets to have this stable ellipse. It gets to have tidal friction, not too much, not too little. It's almost in its own Goldilocks zone. It's in its own habitable zone around Jupiter, but not because of the amount of sunlight, the amount of radiation, but because it has just the right amount of tidal flexing. So this gives Europa the necessary heat to start shifting the ice around. Usually the ice would just be locked in place, totally cold, totally dead, totally frozen. But if there's enough heat, it can start shifting around, which gives it the energy it needs to erase the craters, to have a young surface. But underneath that ice, it could just be more ice. It could just be like kind of slushy, slowly convecting ice that slowly over millions of years takes heat from the center and puts it out to the surface so slowly it deforms. Or if it's warm enough, there could be liquid water. And we think there's liquid water because of the geysers. There is liquid water squirting out of the ice that liquid water has to come from somewhere. We think there's a reservoir of water. In fact, we think there is a global world-spanning ocean locked under the ice of Europa. Let that sink in. I want to say it again because it's kind of a mind-blowing concept. A world-covering liquid water ocean locked in ice, in a place, a part of the solar system you would have never thought to look for liquid water. You look at the surface of Europa, ice. Okay, no liquid water there. Just kidding. Tons of liquid water. More liquid water than the Earth has liquid water. Covers the moon. But it's locked in not a small amount of ice. It's a, we think it's about 100 kilometers of ice. We're not exactly sure how thick it is. But it's somewhere around 100 kilometers. We're pretty sure. Okay. That's cool. That's water. Number one ingredient for life. But there's more ingredients to life than just water. Because, you know, you can imagine if this was pure, 100% pure H2O, that's not life. That's just water. Is that water salty? Does that water have minerals in it? Does that water have oxygen in it? Does that water mix? These are pretty important questions because now we're digging in. If we know that there's liquid water on Europa, check. Number one requirement for life. Now we got like a thousand other requirements. So let's start going down the list, right? If we're trying to figure out if there's life in Europa, we got to figure out what's in this water. The pressure in this water isn't so bad. Yeah, it's a super thick ocean. We think the water itself is about 100 kilometers thick. Uh, and compare that to the deepest ocean, deepest part of the ocean on Earth. It's, you know, on Earth... Uh, we've got like what eight kilometers down to the Marianas Trench five miles eight kilometers that's the deepest our oceans go Europa's ocean pushes down 10 times deeper at least so you think the pressures would be incredible but Europa is small it's about the size of the moon gravity ain't so hard down there so actually if you were to go down to the maximum absolute depth of Europa it's the same as going about uh, eight miles or so deep in earth 
which is, to be fair, a lot of pressure, but it's not like an insane amount of pressure. So the water pressure, that's not a, that's not a hindrance. Okay, we'll put a little check mark there. We, but we still need minerals. We still need oxygen. But there's no... It, basically, what we need is an energy source. And we need chemical arrangements that allow whatever life form to store energy and convert it to do useful things. So the number one thing of doing that on the earth is photosynthesis. You know, plants take light from the sun, energy from that sun, store it chemically, use it for other things. And then we eat it and we use that energy for other things like making podcasts and listening to podcasts and contributing to patreon.com slash PM. So they're very useful uh, use of sunlight. Now, there's obviously no sunlight on Europa. 100 kilometers of ice, that is pitch black. No sunlight. There's a little bit of sunlight reaching the surface, but it's not going deep. If the bottom of the European Ocean has hydrothermal vents, then we're pretty much a-okay. Like if there's places, if there's molten rock in the core of Europa, and that molten rock is leaking through, venting, uh, then just like we have in deep ocean vents on Earth where molten rock uh, leaks out into the ocean. We have entire communities of life forms totally sustaining without sunlight, no photosynthesis necessary, no sunlight needed. Uh, total uh, ecosystems with multiple different kinds of critters, all fascinating and interesting and also kind of gross. Uh, so if there are hydrothermal vents at the bottom of the European Ocean, then, uh, you know, we've, we're all set. We don't think the core of Europa is hot enough to be molten. Maybe, maybe not. So we don't know yet if there are hydrothermal vents. But even if there aren't, there are some intriguing uh, like pathways for life. We know that water can seep down into rocks, like deep into crevices, like deep at the bottom of the ocean. And at those high pressures, the water actually interacts with the rocks and can actually break apart some of the minerals and send some of those elements and chemicals back up into the water. This happens on Earth. Totally legit thing. We've seen this happen on the European Ocean. Sure, it can happen. Why not? You got lots of water. You got lots of rock. Uh, presumably, you have lots of crevasses and fissures deep in the rock at the bottom of the European Ocean. So yeah, sure, this can happen. And so minerals and salts are making their way into that water. Now, here's where that red stuff on the ice comes from. We're actually not exactly sure what that red stuff is. Uh, but through some analyses, through some uh, very, very careful studying, we've actually figured out We've made a guess. Let's let's put it that way. We've made a scientific guess based on reasonable amounts of data, blah, 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 that the red stuff on the surface of Europa is actually salts, like salty salt, like salt you eat, salt, sodium chloride. And when you put salt in a really, really cold environment, like a vacuum, and bombard it with high-energy particles that are streaming from the sun, uh, it actually turns red. So we've actually done this in labs. Like, we put salt in a container, made it really cold, shot it with high-energy light. Wow, red salt. Okay, so maybe, 
There's salts on the surface, like kind of sprinkled on the ice. Where'd those salts come from? They didn't come from the surface because it's just ice on the surface. The salts had to come from the bottom of the European Ocean. That's where all like the, the sodium and the chloride and magnesium, like all the stuff, all the rocks are at the bottom of the ocean. It's just ice up at the top. So this means these minerals, these salts had to be leached out of the bottom, out of the rock, make their way up to the top of the European Ocean, reach that layer of ice, then seep through the ice over the ages, reach the top of the ice, reach finally the surface where they get hit by uh, high energy particles and UV radiation, and they turn red. So this tells us two very, very important things. One, the bottom of the European Ocean is interacting with the rock underneath it. It's not just sitting on top of it. There are some chemical reactions happening. And it's telling us that there is mixing going on in the European Ocean. There are currents that take stuff from one place to another, left to right, top to bottom, that move. And here's a little bonus. You've got water ice on the surface, the surface of Europa. It's being hit with UV radiation. That UV radiation, as weak as it is, but we're talking over millions of years, as weak as it is, can break apart some of that ice the water, disassociate the hydrogen and oxygen, and the oxygen can actually seep down through the ice and get into the water. So if you look at this European Ocean, it's possible, this is a little bit speculative, but it's possible, which makes it exciting, that you've got a body of water, you've got oxygen coming in from the top, you've got minerals and salts coming in from the bottom, and these are getting mixed together. Liquid water with oxygen, minerals, salts that mix together, uh, that looks a lot like an ocean on Earth. Oceans on Earth have oxygen. Oceans on Earth have salts and minerals, and there's a lot of mixing. There might be the right, the necessary chemical balance in chemical pathways for a life to arise. Because as far as we can tell, and again, this is a little bit speculative, we're not 100% sure, as far as we can tell, the European Ocean, even though it's locked underneath 100 kilometers of ice, may look a lot like our own ocean. And our own ocean hosts lives of all sorts. What's down there? I don't know. Nobody knows. It would be awesome to attempt a landing, drill through the ice, send like a little submarine to go exploring. It's kind of hard. Uh, even just getting a lander on a European moon is super hard and not having it be a crash landing because if you actually want to land and not crash, you need rockets, which mean, means you need fuel for the landing and getting that much stuff to the distant parts of the solar system is super hard. Drilling through the ice is incredibly challenging because we're in the vacuum of space. Ice that cold is literally rock hard. 
So imagine trying to send the mining equipment to Europa that can drill through 100 kilometers of solid rock and then send a submersible down. That is a little bit challenging, just a tiny bit. The atmosphere itself on Europa isn't a problem. It's an incredibly thin atmosphere. It's almost a vacuum, but there is a little bit of air there. It is mostly oxygen from this disassociation, from the sunlight hitting the ice. And some of the oxygen just sprays up and comes a very thin atmosphere. That's not a challenge, but getting through the ice is an incredible challenge. Thankfully, we have the geysers to the rescue. Europa is doing the hard work for us. Europa is squirting water through its own ice out into space. So whatever's in the ocean is coming out through the geysers, which means we can send a probe around Europa and orbit it, which is way easier than landing. And we can just fly it through those geysers and taste it, stick out our tongues and mmm, delicious. Look at the chemicals, look at the balance of minerals, figure out what's going on. The European Space Agency is already uh, planning a mission called JUICE, Jupiter Icy Moon Explorer. The Europeans are not the best with naming space missions. Uh, so we're going to have to talk about the JUICE mission someday. Not exactly looking forward to that, but there you go. Um, NASA is also planning uh, flybys of Europa. There's also Enceladus. I've been focusing on Europa, uh, one of these moons of Jupiter, but Saturn has a moon called Enceladus, which is incredibly tiny, like 500 kilometers across or something. Like you could drive across that in a day. Very tiny moon, locked in ice. Again, wouldn't think it's anything special, except we see geysers coming out of it. And for a long time, we saw geysers coming out of the bottom half of Enceladus. And so we thought maybe there's like a large lake or like a large ocean. But there's been some recent evidence to suggest that Enceladus too has a world-spanning ocean. In this case, they were looking at the wobble of the moon as it orbited Saturn. And if this solid inner rocky bit was connected to that icy shell, it would wobble one way. But if there's a layer of fluid, if there's a layer of liquid between the rocky center and the icy shell, it'll wobble a lot more because they're not connected to each other. Almost like a, like a lubricant for a ball bearing or something. We see that. So we think there's a world-spanning ocean on Enceladus. Again, home for life, possibly. So we're planning some missions maybe to go to Saturn to look at the geysers coming out of Enceladus. But wait, there's more. Ganymede, Callisto, Dione possibly have liquid water oceans. Ceres, the asteroid, may have a liquid water oceans. Pluto, Pluto, Pluto may have a liquid water ocean. Maybe. We're not exactly sure about those, but there are some very tantalizing models that suggest that. We have no direct evidence. It appears that liquid water is everywhere. Earth, what makes Earth unique is that we have liquid water on our surface. And you need to be in the Goldilocks zone, the habitable zone to have liquid water on your surface. But you can be pretty much anywhere in the solar system and have liquid water inside of you. So is there life on Europa? I don't know. We don't know. What would we find if we were able to drill through that ice, send a submersible, start poking around the European Ocean? We don't know. 
Maybe just be a vast, empty, salty ocean. Maybe not. So that's all for today. I'd like to thank my top Patreon contributors this month, Huggy Borkard, Tim Fever, Justin Gelta, and Jerry. Uh, Patreon is what keeps this show going, patreon.com slash Sutter. Those little bits, even just a dollar, a couple bucks here every month are what help pay for this show to keep going on. What also keeps the show going on, you ask? Good question is your questions. I need your questions to keep going, so go ahead, send questions, Twitter and Facebook. You can follow me at Paul Matt Sutter, that's my name. You can follow me directly, message me directly, or just do hashtag AskASpaceMan if you're not the following type, or AskASpaceMan at gmail.com. You can send physical letters to P.O. Box 3322, Columbus, Ohio, 43210. If, if, if you want to send me a postcard with a space question on it and I will answer it on the show. Thanks again to, uh, Robert M, Kieran P and at Abguntha for your questions that kind of motivated today's discussion of life on Europa. Thank you so much. Uh, you are the best audience ever, not just because you keep sending me questions, not just because you contribute to Patreon, not just because you uh, give me favorable reviews on iTunes, not just because you tell everyone about how awesome this show is. You're the best audience because, actually, no, all those reasons are the reasons why you're the best audience. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time for more complete knowledge of time and space. today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.